The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. We're live here in New York City, and our guest is on the phone from Austin, Texas today. This is the Permission to Succeed podcast, which is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that some point in their lives to throw all caution aside and just go for it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the great appreciation for the lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King and their world-changing impact and how they gave people permission to be successful. The Permission to Exceed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place advisors can come to to grow their minds and their businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. And our guest today, as I said, live from Austin, is Terrell Gates, the founder and CEO of Virtus Real Estate Capital. Welcome, Terrell. Good morning, Doug. Thank you for having me. So have they built a moat around Austin yet so um, you can stop letting people in because it's just grown so much? <laughs> the city council does a lot to try to do that. <laughs> they... they uh, they, they don't like to invest in infrastructure here because they assume if they don't invest in infrastructure, then uh, people will stop coming. And unfortunately, that has not had the desired effect. <laughs> we have, uh, I, I see all different kinds of numbers, but the most recent stat that I saw was we have over 140 net new move-ins today, per day to Austin. So 140 net new people coming to Austin every single day. I was there so, a couple months ago and the traffic is horrendous. Like 20 it minutes is. for two miles. And, and of course, those of us that have been here for many years and remember it as the quaint college town with, you know, that you, you, you had the capital and you had a lot of folks here when, when legislature was in session. But, you know, that was kind of it. Uh, plenty of those people, I, I think I, I'm pretty much filled to the brim with the number of complaints I get about the traffic. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. <laughs> It's it, it it's rivaling uh, some of our bigger city brethren like uh, Los Angeles as it relates to uh, congestion, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today because of what you guys do, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the market, and I want to f- find out how that is affecting the real estate markets and and what you invested in and whatnot. So, you know, it's a crazy market out there. What are you seeing going on? As it relates to real estate specifically, or just general economic backdrop? Um, general economic backdrop, and you know the economic uncertainty is going on. Sure, um, you know I think I think if you if you lined up ten economists and ten capital market theorists and you know all these great experts, and you said you know where where are we going from here, um, you would probably have a split decision across the board. And I'd love to tell you that uh, I've got some nugget that nobody else has thought of, but I don't. Um, what I can tell you is when you look at the um, sort of longer term backdrop and the economic fundamentals of what we see both domestically and uh, globally, it's hard to believe that this kind of expansion that we've had for the last decade is going to persist. From our perspective, we think there's sort of, um, you know, a one-third chance that we can kind of muddle through and continue in sort of a slow growth environment. 
we think there is a reasonable, although less chance, that we have the chicken little scenario of the sky falling. And I can talk to that a little bit if you like. And and that's the scenario where all risk assets get repriced in a very meaningful way. And then I, I would say that there is a fairly high probability of at least a mild to moderate recession in the coming years. Now, every time I say that, someone always says, well, what are the things other than the inverted yield curve that you're going to point to that have historical context for a recession coming up in the next few years? And I can't argue with that. There's, It's not like you've got these traditional economic indicators all pointing towards recession. That does not exist today. But we're also in a bit of a new normal <laughs> for now 10 years being in a new normal where we have unprecedented levels of equity in the system because what's different about this bubble, and I think we can all agree that across all risk assets, public equities, private equity, um, real estate, we are in a price bubble. Unlike past price or valuation bubbles that were driven primarily by leverage, by very aggressive lending standards and by too much credit sloshing around in the system, what we have today is an equity bubble, but ironically, I think that equity bubble is fueled by a debt bubble from the public sector. In other words, through all of the quantitative easing measurements that we've undertaken over the last dozen years or so, rightfully so in some cases to sort of pull out of the GFC, there's so much liquidity that has been pumped in the system by the federal government borrowing and borrowing long, longer than we ever really have in, in non-wartime periods, to inject all this liquidity into the system. Now, it has not had the desired outcome, I think, that was expected. It has not had the growth, which is why you most recently see Fed fund rates actually ticking up for the first time in many years. Well, if you look at that and you say the government balance sheet is levered up pretty good and that money has found its way into the private sector, well, that has ultimately led to, I would consider, artificially high earnings. So a lot of people like to look at public equities and say, well, your P.E. ratio isn't completely out of whack compared to historical norms at, at peak levels. But when you sort of peel back the layer of that onion and you say, well, a lot of these earnings are being generated by the fact that there's simply so much liquidity in the system and you have low unemployment and you have OK GDP at least and you've got um, you've, you've got the consumer spending, you've got the government spending and you get the multiplier effect from that. All of that adds up to that is artificially increasing earnings across the board. You can say the same thing in real estate. That's driving uh, revenue at the property level because rental rates have gone through the roof and you know most asset classes, not, not all, certainly any residential asset class, it's gone through the roof. Um, occupancies are quite high and well, why shouldn't they be? We've got a three point, depending on whose numbers you believe, a 3.7 or 3.9% national unemployment rate. And for those of us in some of the major metros where that have benefited from significant urbanization and even places like Austin, where our unemployment rates and really arguably in the mid twos, um, then that's ultimately going to drive higher rental rates, higher occupancies, which means higher revenue and real estate, which on one hand you say, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? And it is, 
um, I guess you would say on one hand, but that has led to artificially high valuations. And it has also, in many cases, led to average Americans, what, what we like to refer to the blue collar and the gray collar workforce. Today, it's very difficult, if not nearly impossible, for them on a good wage even to afford housing, particularly in some of these core urban areas. So there are positives and negatives to all of this. But, but if you said, hey, Terrell, you know, cut through it all and tell me, you know, what, what's the economy or what, what is real estate going to do over the next few years? I would say that there is a higher probability that we see a retreat um, than we see another meaningful gain. Despite all the tax benefits that we've we've gotten recently, despite a, a, a presidential administration that, at least in the short term, is is probably generating some really um, positive momentum um, for the economy and the capital markets that can only last so long, I think we have to be prepared for at least a mild to moderate downturn um, in the at least the intermediate term, if not the short term. So that's not the chicken little thing happening, like. All my friends say, well, the market's going to crash, so real estate's going to crash. Right. That's right. And I would even argue that even in the chicken little scenario, there is an argument to be made that real estate is, um, is going to win the relative beauty contest. And what I mean by that is all categories of risk assets are fully priced today. I talk to my corporate private equity buddies. I talk to my venture buddies. Certainly, I mean, there, anybody you talk to on public equities and, and, and what we've seen um, in that regard. Any income instrument, any credit strategy. There's so much credit sloshing around in the system. And you say, well, what do valuations have to do with credit? Well, when you look at the kind of terms that they're having to lend at and the kind of risk that they're taking on for those kinds of meager returns, that tells you that it's overvalued. So it's, a, it's really across the system that you see overly value prices. And so when there's a reset, I think, I think a lot of those valuations are going to have to come in. Will that happen to real estate? Yes. Is real estate a little more sensitive because of the common use of leverage in real estate? Yes, it's a little more sensitive on that regard. But I had lots of conversations two or three years ago with big, smart institutional investors about how they were decreasing their allocation to real estate because they were worried about it being toppy then. So you're talking three to four-year-old data, right? And interestingly enough, many real estate investors today are maintaining, if not increasing, their exposure to real estate. And I think a lot of the theory behind that is Real estate is going to win the relative beauty contest because you've got an asset class that generates income, that has appreciation potential, that is a natural inflation hedge, and you've got the downside protection of a real asset. And that provides some stability that private equity and public equities and fixed income doesn't really provide. So you can, you can kind of cut it a couple of different ways, Doug. But I think you will see a scenario where, yes, real estate gets hurt, but on a relative basis, perhaps not as meaningfully as it has in past downturns, because you don't have super high leverage loans out there today. You don't have 
super aggressive lending standards um, from the lenders like you saw in 2006 and 7 and you saw in 1999 and you saw in 1991 and you saw in 1986. Those things don't exist today. You do have high valuations, but you don't have overly aggressive lending. So you think real estate is going to be the investment theme for the next decade. What are some of the reasons you believe that? Well, I don't want to go as far to say that, you know, just go along real estate for the next 10 years and you're going to win. Um, I think what's changed in real estate a lot is I think you have to be far more selective about where and how you play. And what I mean by that is, is, is historically, most investors kind of said, well, there's commercial real estate and there's you know, residential real estate. And when they said residential, they meant typically single family residential homes. Um, and you know, single family residential homes, even though we've seen obviously some massive valuation increases over the last decade, you know, that's by far the most volatile category of real estate, right? Technically speaking, that is not investment real estate. That is a lifestyle asset. When you invest in a home, whether you're whether you're buying your primary residence, you're buying a vacation home, or you you're buying a what's known as SFR, single family rental residential, that you're buying to rent out, that is those assets are not designed to be long-term income-producing assets. Those are lifestyle assets, and for that reason, they tend to have the most valuation volatility of all different categories of real estate. And they also, um, most people don't realize how much the carrying costs and the opportunity costs are on those asset classes compared to, say, commercial real estate. Now, if, if you're talking about commercial real estate, which is where the vast majority of institutional investors focus their effort exclusively, they don't really invest in public REITs that much because public REITs, although they own real estate, the performance of the REITs is tied more to the stock market. There's a higher correlation to the S&P 500 for public REITs than there is to the actual real estate assets that they own. So for that reason, the vast majority of institutional investors have little to no exposure to publicly traded REITs. Now, this is not a knock on publicly traded REITs. Publicly traded REITs have been the highest performing public asset class for 30 years. If you look at just straight up returns, that has been the highest performer. It's also been the most volatile, but from a total return perspective, I mean, it's tripled the S&P, right, since 2000. Um, So it's kind of hard to argue with that. But when you look at kind of the most sophisticated investors in real estate, such as the university endowments, and maybe you could argue some of the big pension funds and some of the sovereign wealth funds, they focus almost exclusively on private real estate. And in the past, it was sort of, well, they're either going to do some predominantly office and some retail, and then in in the last 15 to 20, maybe 25 years, multifamily has become the asset class of choice. You always need a place to live was kind of the thesis. And so that's where you see historically the lowest cap rates, you see the highest valuation, but you also see the most stability in the rent roll, which is a good thing for sure. Well, today that's changed a bit from, it's just about office and, and retail and, and multifamily and maybe throwing in a little hotel and industrial. Now it's bifurcated and segmented into a lot more different asset classes. And so what we do as a firm is we specifically do not invest in the traditional categories of real estate, what's known as the basic 
food groups of commercial real estate, which is office, retail, industrial, multifamily, and some people throw hospitality or hotels into the mix. We do not invest in those categories very purposefully because we believe that those categories are the most beta-sensitive categories of commercial real estate. Instead, we focus on what's known as the niche or these things have a lot of names today, Doug, cycle-resilient property types, recession-resilient property types, alternative property types, things like healthcare. So that would be senior living medical office, things like educational assets, student housing, charter schools, early ed, um, affordable housing, what we define as workforce housing, which is quality affordable housing for the average U.S. renter, and then self-storage assets. And the common theme amongst these different property types is a couple. Number one, they tend to be much more resilient during periods of economic distress. They have much more durable income streams than traditional categories of commercial real estate. They also tend to have lower valuation volatility, especially during periods of distress. And for that reason, what you will see is they overall, they have a better risk-adjusted return opportunity set than traditional commercial real estate asset classes. Now, with that, you've, you've got a number of benefits that come. And it's the one asset class, if you will, if you want to call it an asset class, that it is one of the few where you can play both offense and defense at the same time. And here's what I mean by that. Well, yes, these asset classes, senior living, medical office, affordable housing, things of that nature, they are more resilient during periods of economic distress. Well, why are they more resilient? Well, because these are things that you need at all parts of the economic cycle. And these are driven by major demographic trends that are unabating. Things like the baby boomer demographic, right? So that's a large demographic trend in the history of the United States. At the peak, there are 78 million baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964. You've got the millennial demographic. That's predominantly the kids of the baby boomers. That's the second largest demographic trend in the history of the United States. If you use the BLS's data, it's actually the largest demographic trend, but the way we defined it, define it, which is, which is people born between 1977 and 1994, there are 74 million of them. We also, um, we also follow very closely the Latino demographic. This is the largest minority ethnicity in the United States. 17% of the population, 52 million documented Hispanics. Here in our home state of Texas, um, the Latino demographic, if, if tr current trends persist, will actually be the majority here by 2030 in the state of Texas. Well, these demographic trends all have very specific real estate needs. And if you think through, like, what do they need? Well, what does a boomer need? Well, a boomer needs health care because when you turn 65 years old, you spend on average, again, this depends upon whose numbers you believe, but regardless, the outcome is the same. You spend between 3x and 5x what the average 45-year-old spends on health care. And we simply do not have enough health care real estate, medical office, senior living, and everything in between to deal with that overwhelming silver tsunami, that wave of boomers coming through the system. When you look at where they're going to live, there is simply not enough senior living for all the people coming through the system. A lot of people think the senior living businesses are all about the baby boomers today. We, we haven't even touched the boomers yet. 
peak demand for senior living doesn't even come until the year 2043 when boomers are at their height. That trend has decades to come. We're still really just dealing with the great generation. That's mostly who's using senior living today. It's the parents of the of the boomers. When you look at um, education, last time I checked, you need education in all parts of the cycle. And interestingly enough, when you look at university enrollment, if you look at our last six recessions, Doug, in every one of those recessions, university enrollment has swelled. It makes sense, right? Because if you go into a recession, you're going to have increasing unemployment, you're going to have decreasing GDP. During that period of time, it's not exactly a very favorable environment to get a job. So students will choose to stay in school longer. They'll turn. They'll choose to um, go to grad school. You see people going back to school to retool. That was something that we saw for the first time. I've been in the student housing business since 1992. And one of the things that we saw during the global financial crisis that we had not seen before was, yes, university enrollment was was swelling like it had, had done in the past, but we actually saw quite a few um, alternative students, such as older students like baby boomers, going back to school to retool for the new economy. Um, so anyways, long story short, you need education in all parts of the cycle. You need healthcare in all parts of the cycle. You need affordable housing in all parts of the cycle. So this story is not just a defensive story about more stable income and more durable income, but it's also a growth story. So you get both defense and offense with this particular strategy. So what do advisors need to pay attention to when looking at this asset class for their clients? Yeah, so there's a big rub here, right? <laughs> this is the friction. Because if, if I walked into an advisor's office or I went and spoke at a conference, as I often do, and I stood up on the podium and I said, hey, um, I've got this, this these great categories of real estate asset classes that outperform during good times. They really outperform during bad times. They're going to give you downside protection if things go wrong, yet it's also a great growth story if things go right. I'd probably get laughed out of the room because they would say it's too good to be true. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Well, the friction is, is a couple of things. Number one, these asset classes tend to be highly fragmented. Number two, they tend to be more operationally intensive than traditional categories of real estate. So running a student housing property is completely different than running a traditional apartment complex. Running a student housing property is more akin to running a hotel that's filled with a bunch of 19-year-olds. Okay, so it's a, it's a different it's a different operating model. Um, running a medical office building is very different than running a traditional office building. Running a senior living community is a it, that's the most operationally intensive asset class there is. And if you don't understand and fully appreciate those operating components, and if you don't have the resources and the know-how and the systems and procedures in place to not just optimize NOI, because it's not just about optimizing the, the P&L of the property, it's about taking care of the residents, taking care of elderly people. We, we have to care for thousands of elderly people across the country, and, and we hold that responsibility at a high level of respect because it's very important because it's people's lives. So you have more operationally intensive asset classes 
And the other thing that you have in these property types is there's simply more idiosyncratic risks than in traditional categories of real estate. In other words, there's more nuance that goes in to each one of these properties. So each market, each submarket, each property even is different than the last three that you looked at. So these property segments do not serve well, let's call them the generalist investors. Um, we've seen a lot of new capital f- come into these property types in recent years, Doug. Um, whether it's small mom and pop capital or the largest institutions in the world. If, if you took the 10 largest private equity real estate fund managers, seven of those 10 have in, entered one of our property types in the last five years. We've seen the large sovereign wealth funds. We've seen the large pension funds come into senior living and medical office and student housing and some of those categories for the first time ever. And interestingly enough, despite the fact that they've got all these resources and they're sophisticated investors, and despite the fact that real estate has performed pretty darn good over the last several years, they've had mixed results in these categories. And it's because of these idiosyncratic risks. It's because of the operational intensity and the typical real estate investment model doesn't necessarily lend to as consistent of outcomes in these property types. And so the end result is, is you end up seeing a much wider spread from the median. In other words, the standard deviation on performance returns is wider in my property types than it is in traditional categories of real estate. It's less predictable unless you're working with someone who lives and breathes that category every day, all day, has seen multiple cycles and has the expertise, which candidly is driven from being around long enough to make a lot of mistakes along the way and iterate and learn from those mistakes and apply that to your model, you will see less predictable outcomes unless unless you've got a partner like that. So, so, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. So, finish your thought, and then we can go back to my to my next one. Well, well, and I was just going to kind of close with if you said, "All right, this is great. You know, senior living sounds wonderful, and and you know, the, I can sit here and tell you for the next hour all the different stats driving these property segments." But if you said, "What are the big gotchas in these property types besides?" you know, working with, being important to work with somebody that really knows these property segments. The two big gotchas in my property types today are entrance pricing and new supply risk. So entrance pricing, that is the cost to buy or build property today. And and by the way, this is, this is uh, applicable across all commercial real estate. There's Valuations are at all-time highs. They've even surpassed their 2006, 2007 levels. There's there's no real arguing that. On a relative basis, when you put sort of historical context in mind, um, what we see is that not only are valuations high, but especially for large transactions, portfolio premiums, generally speaking, are the highest that we've seen. Um, in other words, when you buy a portfolio, of commercial real estate assets, you're going to pay more per asset than if you bought those one at a time. It's kind of contra what you would expect in other industries, right? I, I call it the anti-Walmart effect. You know, if you're a if you're a distributor or if you're a manufacturer for a good that Walmart sells, 
and, and you go to Walmart and you say, hey, I'm going to, I want you to buy 10,000 of my widgets for a dollar each. Walmart says, no, I'm not going to buy 10,000 of your widgets for a dollar each. I'm going to buy a million of your widgets for 50, but for 50 cents each. Well, it's the opposite in real estate. The more you put together in a transaction, the higher the price is paid, which is why it's so ironic that the largest investors in the space and the largest funds in the space continue to get so much capital because they have to buy such large transactions to put that capital to work that it means de facto they're paying up for those assets because they're buying predominantly in larger portfolios. The other thing that you have to be careful about besides entrance pricing, what you're paying for the asset and, and you know how much you're, what it costs to build is the new supply risk. So demand in my property types is rarely a question mark. As we talked about, there's always demand for healthcare. There's always demand for education. There's always demand for affordable housing. The problem is, is a bunch of new supplies come to the market, especially in student housing and senior living. And it tends to be concentrated in a lot of the lower barrier to entry markets. So you might go buy a stabilized senior living property, or you might go build and, and stabilize it. In other words, lease it up and things are great. And you got 95% occupancy and you're increasing your rental rates and you're taking care of your residents and everything that looks good. And then all of a sudden somebody comes and drops another 500 beds down the street. Or in the student housing space, we saw one market this past year, big Texas market, by the way, where in one year, nearly 6,000 new student housing beds hit the market in just one year. And that market went from low 90s of occupancy to upper 70s. Well, that's a pretty big movement on your, on your revenue stream. And at that level, and particularly given what most people have paid for these assets these days, it's simply not economically viable at that occupancy level. So you got to be very careful about going into markets that have new supply risk or, or elevated new supply risk. So those are the two big ones. Entrance pricing and new supply risk are the things to watch out for. So you established Virtus in, in 2003, but your expertise in this area was built long ago because you're a third generation real estate investor. Can you just tell us a little bit about growing up in that environment? Absolutely. Um, I grew up here in Texas. I grew up in San Antonio. And um, you, you, my grandfather was an educator, among other things. He, he became a de facto commercial real estate investor. He, he'd been an educator, a rancher, um, and uh, got into commercial real estate. And then my dad uh, became a developer. He, too, was um, an, a man of many talents. He'd, he'd been an entrepreneur in multiple categories, but really commercial real estate development was his primary focus. And um, very successful. It was sort of a rags to riches story. And then during the 1980s, during the real estate and savings and loan crisis, which most people don't realize this, but the real estate and SNL crisis in Texas was far worse than the global financial crisis was elsewhere. Um, we had a major downturn that pretty much nobody could sidestep. And so my family lost everything during the 1980s. We went through what I still, after many hours of therapy, <laughs> are, are, are comfortable enough calling um, our net worthectomy. Uh -huh. And I got to tell you, when you go through a net worthectomy, uh, it very much influences 
how you view these big sort of macro uncontrollable risks that influence most investment outcomes, really. You know, we love to talk about beta and alpha and finding the managers that have the edge to deliver the alpha. But if you look historically across asset classes, the vast majority of returns have come from beta. And I got to tell you, Doug, um, going through what I experienced, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be part of anything that's all about beta. Um, I don't want to have to go through uh, the kind of experience that I went through in the 80s for my family. And so um, that experience taught me so much. And I am um, forever grateful to my family and to God for teaching me that experience early on so that I could apply it. And, you know, kind of fast forward to 2003 when I started Virtus. Um, you know, I was at a big firm before this, uh, and I saw the way they did things at big firms, and they did a lot of really good things at the big firms, but they also did some things that I thought we could maybe do a little bit better. And so Virtus was founded out of the idea that we could build a little better mousetrap than others, and we could build an investment strategy, ultimately, that was sustainable in and out of economic cycles. And a lot of that was really born out of the experience that I had in the 80s. And I got to tell you, my family never recovered financially from that. We, we, they were never able to um, come out of that. And um, ultimately, it, it, I guess you would say it ended up being a very expensive education for me. Um, but I don't take it lightly. And so when I founded Virtus in 03, you know, we started out mostly focused on traditional categories of real estate, mostly multifamily investing apartments, because my team had a lot of experience in that from our from our previous uh, lives. Well, we got to a point in late 2005, early 2006, when we saw very top evaluations in the real estate market, kind of like today. But the other thing that existed then that does not exist today was very aggressive lending standards. And so when we saw this kind of convergence of trends of top evaluations combined with very aggressive lending standards, it wasn't exactly the same, but it rhymed a lot of the 1980s and the real estate and savings and loan crisis. And so we kind of had this aha moment at that point. We were doing some strategic planning in our firm. We are sitting around a small conference room table, and we said, look, we think it's going to get tough from here. We don't know what it looks like. I'd, I'd love to sit here and tell you, Doug, that we predicted the GFC and we predicted 08 and the housing crisis. We didn't predict any of that. We're not that smart. But what we did have a view on was this sort of roaring bull market that we had been experiencing in real estate for several years and had benefited from was likely not going to persist. Well, because we had worn portfolio managers' hats in our past lives, kind of like a lot of your listeners do, a lot of them are are PMs, right? And when you're a portfolio manager and you're thinking about being in more of a risk-off trade mindset, one of the things that you can do to lower the risk of the portfolio is to bring in lower or non-correlated investment strategies into your portfolio. Well, we took that same simple concept and applied it to commercial real estate investing. And so we very specifically started researching, trying to find, at the time, we were focused really exclusively on drivers of tenancy demand 
that were sustainable during periods of economic distress. And that's when we ultimately identified those three major demographic trends I touched on earlier, the boomers, the millennials, and the Latino demographic. And we said, look, these trends are going to persist regardless of what happens to GDP or interest rates or cap rates or, you know, the next sociopolitical shock to the system, you know, whether it's the funny little man in North Korea setting off another missile or some type of um, everybody keeps talking about the overblown. Uh, well, I won't say overblown, but trade war with China, whatever it is, whatever next sociopolitical shock that I can't predict the fact of the matter is, is the boomer demographic is not going away. The millennial demographic is not going away. The Latino demographic is not going away. These things are going to persist, and they are still at their early stages. And our simple thesis was back in 06, 05, 06, was, look, if we can meet the real estate needs of these major demographic trends, then that should provide us at least some level of insulation. doesn't mean you're bulletproof, but some level of insulation during periods of economic distress. So we identified 10 property types that we felt like met that criteria. I wrote a white paper on the subject, and that's what really laid out our investment thesis over the last now 13 or 14 years. We've exclusively focused on these property types. We ended up really focusing on half of those 10. Five of them, we either decided there wasn't enough opportunity set or it did not meet our recession resilient criteria. And so we've really been focused on kind of this sort of five or six asset classes over the last 13 or 14 years. And what we've done is we've built, built teams of specialists in each one of these property segments um, to help us go out and execute our respective strategies in each one of those property segments. That's great. So, so this being the Permission to Succeed podcast, we'll, we'll get you out of here with, with this. You know, going through what you went through with your family, starting your own business, there's a lot of entrepreneurs and advisors listening to this. What advice would you have for them when they are looking in the mirror and don't think they can do something and need to go on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll start with, it's an absolute cliche, but it's one of my favorite. I very much believe that the number one corollary to success is persistence. Um, we have four core values here at our firm. First one is thoughtful evolution, which means we look for people that wake up every day trying to figure out how are we going to be better today than we were yesterday and how are we going to be better tomorrow than we are today. So being a lifelong learner is so crucial because I very much believe whether you're talking about an individual, an organization, or an entire system, you either evolve or you die. So you have to be evolving, but do it in a thoughtful way. Don't just be striking out and pioneering for the sake of pioneering. Do it in a very thoughtful, risk-adjusted way. Our second core value is resilience or sustainability. We want people that can get their teeth knocked in and pick themselves right back up off the ground and go at it again. That's so important to being successful, especially in this day and age. Our third core value is character, which means doing the right thing, especially when it's hard. And then our fourth core value is um, significance. And this goes way beyond success. And it goes beyond personal success or corporate success. It goes, it goes into what are you doing out in the world to leave this place a better place than you found it. And so I think it's very important to, number one, um, 
be persistent. Um, stick with it. If you have conviction around what you're doing, um, be willing to do what the next guy isn't. About the time that the next guy is tapping out, you're ready for the next round and you're ready to go. I think that's important. I also think it's important, though, to be very humble and hold that mirror up in front of your face all the time. Retest assumptions. Don't just take generalizations, which is the biggest I think that's the uh, that's one of the number one risks to investments. That's one of the number one risks for entrepreneurs is using just rules of thumb and untested generalizations or assumptions. Test it all. Confirm that it what you have conviction around is really right. And even if you believe it, go back and test it again later because things change, particularly in this day and age. And the humility piece is is such an important part of that because if you're if you don't have humility, you're not going to do that. You're going to you're going to keep drinking your own Kool-Aid. You're going to think that you've got it figured out and you're going to think that well, you know, torpedoes be damned, I'm going to I'm going to make it all happen and and not listen to others around you. And that's another big piece of this is putting other smart people around you that will test your assumptions, that will challenge you, that won't be yes men. And I, I made this mistake early on, early on in my life cycle at Virtus. It was sort of, you know, me as the general, and even though I was a very, very young general at the time, and kind of a lot of smart and really capable privates. Um, I didn't have other generals or colonels or even captains and lieutenants at the time. And that was a mistake. And I had to learn from that mistake the hard way. And today I have an organization that has gone well beyond me. And, you know, I look forward to the day when the people here say, you know what, you're the weak link, Terrell. It's time for you to, you know, check on out and uh, we're going to put you out to pasture, <laughs> which, which, which is fine, too. But I think uh, it's it's so important um, to surround yourself with good, smart people that will challenge you. And then the other big one, I think that is especially important now that I see this mistake time and time again is being 10 plus years into a bull market. Everybody thinks they're smart. Everybody thinks it's easy, whether you're talking about real estate or any other business. And I think it's very important for entrepreneurs to know that what we've been living in the last decade is not reality. It is virtual reality. And we will likely never see in our lifetime again this kind of an expansion for this period of time. So any business model that you're considering right now that is based upon status quo, in my humble opinion, I would throw that in the trash can. I would make sure that anything that you're considering today can withstand a more difficult economic environment, a more difficult background, probably something we haven't seen before. There will be some black or gray swan event that we can't predict that will create the next new normal. And so I would make sure that you've got a business plan that is resilient before you even think about all the other things that you need to put in place to go out and execute. Great. That's super advice. Where can people find Virtus if they're looking to find you? Uh, well, we have properties all over the country. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if they want to visit your but, firm, is it uh, your website or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just vertusre.com. Um, it's V-I-R-T-U-S-R-E.com. Virtus, everybody always asks, where did that come from? 
Uh, well, when I found the firm, I thought it was kind of neat. It's Latin for strength and virtue. And the other important piece of the equation was it happened to be a domain name that was available at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, goodness. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really educational. I think we all learned a lot and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. For everyone here at iris.xyz and the Permission to Succeed podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen. Thank you so much for joining us. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here.